Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast Brief. I'm Marco Smolitsis. I'm here with Carrie Alavel. This is our weekly show about politics, and our weekly show is a week away from the midterm election. Carrie, welcome. Oh my goodness! Yes, it's it's happening. How are you feeling? How are you feeling? I don't know. I got my hoodie on. It's cold here. It's actually actually feels like fall in uh, in Northern California for once. <laughs> Yeah, it's, there's rain, this, this, there's this magical rain. concoction where things right. fall from the sky. So um, <laughs> I don't know. How am I feeling? I feel good, honestly. Uh, I, I don't feel certain about anything, but I feel like I have always felt that Democrats are very competitive in this race and um, and have a good chance of, you know, of keeping the Senate and, and you know, having a better than expected uh, showing in the house. That's, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a good chance. It's not, it's not a done deal. Let's just put it that way. So um, look, as as competitive as this race is, I feel as, as good as I could at this point. Let me lay some uh, foundation. So uh, everybody knows where the, where we are, where, where we are at right now. The Senate is 50-50 with the Democratic vice president casting the tie-breaking vote. Republicans need one seat for the majority. We need to hold our ground, but to get actual things accomplished, we actually need to pick up two seats. We need to get to 52 seats in order to have a filibuster-proof majority, a majority that would eliminate the filibuster over the objections of Arizona Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema and West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. In the House, Democrats have a slim majority, but it's it's a different it's a different map because of reapportionment. So we really can't compare the existing map to the map we're going to have in January. It's new boundaries in the new in the new map. Two hundred and twenty two seats were won by Joe Biden in twenty twenty. So we have to hold our ground uniformly. Doesn't usually work that way. A lot of local issues, candidates, those things matter. But generally speaking, if we hold our ground uniformly to 2020 numbers, we can hold the House. So on paper, things look pretty good. Now we are running against history. This is what a lot of the media just, the media thinks history is a terminative. And historically, the party out of, the party in power loses a lot of seats, an average of about 30 seats in the House. That doesn't always happen. Back in 2002, post 9-11, George Bush's Republicans actually held their ground and picked up some seats. So under extraordinary conditions, things can change. And right now, I believe, and Carrie and I, we've been talking about this for over a year now. We believe that we are operating under extraordinary conditions. One, the uh, midterms are usually terrible for the party in power because it's it's a referendum on the incumbent president and that incumbent president cannot fulfill all his campaign promises because our system isn't built that way, right? You got to get through Congress and the Supreme Court. So it's almost impossible to really fulfill those, those campaign promises and so supporters get demoralized and they tune out while the opposition, you know, they don't, they don't tune out. They're, they're furious. And so, this is this is the standard uh, midterm dynamic. What happens though when the ex president, a Mr. Donald Trump, doesn't get off the stage? Can we have a referendum on the incumbent Joe Biden? 
if we are actually reliving the 2020 presidential election because Donald Trump is front and center. So that's the first factor. Second factor is the Dobbs decision on on abortion. And there is a media effort right now to claim that, oh, nobody cares about that anymore. Everybody, it's just gas prices and and inflation. Um, I don't think that's true. I don't think the data shows that that is true. I think we're seeing record turnout with women in the early vote. But again, it's a dynamic that really sort of shakes up the typical midterm cycle, which without the Supreme Court and without Donald Trump, yes, it would be about Joe Biden and the cost of gas, as stupid as that is. That would be sort of the the question. And Joe Biden's approval ratings are in the low 40s. So this is not the kind of um, he doesn't have the juice that would help ride Democrats into victory. So that's the general environment. So the media thinks history is determinative. We have what is essentially a 50-50 Senate, literally 50-50 Senate, and pretty much a 50-50 House. So who is going to come out ahead in uh, next Tuesday? And by the way, we're not going to know who actually won the House probably for weeks. But that's sort of the, the general dynamic. So Carrie, did I get that right? Did I summarize that okay? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I think if, if perhaps you understated the 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 um, media narrative, which um, it's not, you know, I mean, the media has has uh, certainly decided uh, that that beltway media, I should say, for the most part, seems to have decided that, you know, Republicans are going to win this. And I just have to say, I just have to reiterate that there's just continues to be that continues to be unfounded. What is really clear is that no one knows exactly. I mean, pollsters are saying, geez, we're holding our breath here. You know, like we don't know if we've gotten the models right. Turnout's going to be historic. You know, we've been trying to course correct for undercounting Republicans in, in past cycles, particularly when Trump has been on the ticket, like in 2016 and 2020. But what what we weren't modeling for was some sort of historic turnout among Democrats. And, you know, and then at the same time, you've got I just think we cannot ignore this um, because I have to say so I you know, I've served as a member of the of the Beltway Press Corps, right? The D.C. Press Corps. I covered the White House. I was in the halls of Congress, things like that. There's groupthink takes hold pretty easily there. But it's never been worse than now. And um, I've been kind of shocked at what the, you know, some of the, the sort of exclusive group of reporters and analysts, uh, there's just been a really subversive strain of GOP cheerleading for the final weeks after they finally admitted, well, it looks like Democrats might do better than we initially said. And then there were a couple, there was a week of polling that suggested that, you know, Republicans were doing a little bit better in the generic ballot choice, the choice between, you know, an unnamed Democrat and an unnamed Republican and whether or not you would at this point in the race choose one or the other. In other words, who would you prefer, which party would you prefer had control of Congress? And there was a slight uptick for like a week in in people saying Republicans, and then it went back to Democrats again. But the media has just held on to this narrative. And, you know, nothing has been more, uh, nothing was more glaring to me than when I was writing about this. I was literally in the, in the process of writing about this media narrative when um, on Thursday night last week, the New York Times dropped uh, four polls in competitive races, uh, congressional races. House right? races. 
yeah. house races, sorry, uh, four competitive house races, one uh, in um, in Kansas, Kansas three, the third district, Nevada, the first district, New Mexico, the second district, and Pennsylvania, the eighth district. And the opening sounded like we were just, it, Democrats were really in. Democrats are winning across and you should read it because I think this really illustrates it but I just want to really reiterate that the poll top lines had Democrats winning all four of these bellwether competitive races right they had so Democrats were up in three three of them Democrats were up in three of them and tied in one of them and here's how here was the opening of the piece President Biden is unpopular everywhere economic concerns are mounting Abortion rights are popular, but social issues are more often secondary. A new series of House polls by the New York Times and Siena College across four archetypal swing districts offers fresh evidence that Republicans are poised to retake Congress this fall as the party dominated among voters who care most about the economy. I mean, I just like for the life of me cannot see how does that square, Marcos? How does that square with the numbers they came up with? Four battleground districts, three of them, the Democrats are in the lead. One of them is tied. And the lead says that those polls somehow provide fresh evidence, fresh Fresh evidence evidence. that Republicans are poised to take control of Congress. They wrote the story. The polls came in and they were like, eh, can't even be bothered to tweak it. And they did it again a week later or a few days later when they had four Senate polls. Marcos, rewriting what you've already written is really a hassle. So sometimes you just run the original copy, I guess. I don't know. That's the New York Times, guys. I mean, I just like I, I'm amazed. And what, what makes it even worse is that then what one of the, the main pollsters involved in, in gathering that information and get involved in gathering those polls, Nate Cohn, who works for the New York Times Upshot, right? He then tweets about this and in his own tweeting admits that 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 on balance, the polls are better for Democrats than I would have guessed, given our national polling. So he admits that Democrats outperformed his own expectations. And yet the framing of the article is Democrats are doomed. I mean, I just I'm like I was flabbergasted by it when I wrote the piece. So anyway. So I'm going to I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And this is this is devil's advocate for for a reason, not to be a jackass, because a lot of people who do devil's advocate are jackasses. No, I'm doing this because I'm going to lead into something. The devil's advocate response is one is look at history, blah, blah, blah. But then they will say that polls have undercounted systemically the last several cycles, the Trump white male vote. And I, I like to call him no, the kidding. Trump not the Trump nihilist voter, right? Who just wants to destroy. They're not going to answer a phone and talk to a pollster. They're going to give that pollster the middle finger. That's that's, and I don't doubt that's true. I actually will give that. What there's there's a second piece though, and this is a piece that I think everybody's missing, and that maybe we should talk a little bit about. We have our own unpollable demographic, and that is the younger. Under 40 people who don't have landlines and they, they have cell phones, but they're not going to answer a cell call from a unknown number. And they, we have seen, we have seen um, just objectively in the, in the voter registration numbers that we've seen record voter registration from the under 25 crowd, particularly women under 25 have uh, 
registered in large numbers. How do we how do we pull that? I mean, there's just literally no way to reach those people. So there is a very real possibility and likely probability that there is an unpullable group of people. We have evidence from those four special elections that took place after the Dobbs ruling that, um, and particularly in Kansas, where that national or that, sorry, statewide abortion ban got beat back, the constitutional amendment, that, that youth voters turned out in, in record numbers uh, to beat that back. So, so, I mean, there is evidence that, that young voters are turning, have turned out in bigger numbers in some of these special elections that happened after the Supreme Court demolished Roe v. Wade. Yeah, in the last few episodes, Carrie and I have definitely been talking about, we don't, we're, not, we're not optimistic about next Tuesday just because of the polling or because we're, 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 you know, casting doubt on the polling, but because there are actual elections. We've seen elections since Dobbs, the decision was leaked and then since it officially came out and Democrats had been systemically by about six points overperforming Joe Biden's numbers. Now, a special election is a different dynamic than a general election. It's in the middle of summer, but historically that has always benefited Republicans. It benefited us this time. So that is a point of, of optimism. But moving on to the polling, because everybody's so obsessed with the polling, to that national narrative has also been set by, by these polling aggregates, the 538 polling aggregate and the Real Clear Politics RCP polling aggregate. And Carrie, as, as you wrote about, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about, more about that. And Simon Rosenberg, who was our guest a few weeks ago, has, has been all over the place. He was just on MSNBC talking about this. There is a rash of right wing pollsters that are flooding the ag- aggregates. And not only are they skewing the top lines, making it seem like the, the, the ag- aggregate, and that is the, sort of the average of all the polls. So it, doesn't, it makes the aggregate look more Republican, makes it look like they have better chances, but they're not releasing their, their crosstabs. These are opaque to secretive outfits. They release a sort of top line, you know, Republicans are winning the generic congressional ballot 49-47, but there's no crosstab. So we can go and look and look to see, you know, what those numbers are. Real pollsters will do that. So you can go and you can see, oh, well, this pollster says that women are 50-50 Republican. That's highly unlikely. It's, it's an outlier. And you can sort of make analysis based on that. So so you have this, this kind of crazy information warfare tactic that Republicans are doing by creating these sort of shady pollsters, including one that was just two high school kids. This was like yesterday, two high school kids had a poll, and I'm, I'm using scare quotes, poll, and that got thrown into the 538 aggregate. So even when you have this national narrative that already is like, well, history, and then they, so they assume because Joe Biden's not popular, and they assume that it's a midterm election that Democrats will do poorly. And then you have polls real, like, credible polls saying, like, no, nah, this thing's like, Democrats either have the slight advantage or or at worst, it's 50-50. And then you have this flood of right-wing pollsters with little to no accountability claiming a different story. And so that also feeds that Beltway narrative. And I know you've written about those, that, that right-wing deluge of uh, kind of yeah. shitty polling. So there is, there's a whole feedback loop, right? It, it includes this polling that is, that is sort of bending the models at 538 and real, real clear politics towards a certain, you know, towards a certain outcome. And then 
there's also there's also you know there was this big ad buy that Republicans made in these House districts. They put an extra eleven million into like sixteen House districts that made it seem like they were really bullish on their chances there, and that all helps the media think, oh, Republicans are really on. You know, they're they're moving here. They've got something, right? So let me just give you an example though of of how much this can how much these polls, these kind of fake GOP leaning pro GOP polls can sort of like kill the aggregate, right? So in Georgia, which I'm just going to say right at the outset is a very competitive race. I don't want anyone to not take it seriously. But the 538 aggregate up until, you know, October 20th or so had Senator Democratic incumbent Senator, Senator Raphael Warnock leading that race by by pretty steadily three to four points during the month of October. Right. And then the Republican rival, Herschel Walker, you know, there's been a bunch of there's been a bunch of polls released ever since October 20th that showed him winning. So by two to three points, typically, then after if you look at it, five of the let's see, there were seven polls taken after October 20th. Five of them were conducted by either GOP-aligned groups or pollsters that use GOP-friendly modeling, right? And and they all they all show Walker in the lead in that race by two to five points. And then suddenly, a race where Raphael Warnock spent a month, you know, of October, three to four points ahead. Now he's just barely ahead of Walker by one point after this flood of polling from these Republican groups. The other two, um, the other two polls that were released during that time period, essentially over the past week or a little more, from New York Times Siena and from the Atlantic Journal Constitution found that Warnock had a three-point advantage and that the two candidates were tied respectively. So it's a tight race. No one should be thinking that Herschel Walker is out of the running, regardless of how unfit and hypocritical and what a you know terrible candidate he is. And no one can believe that someone like him, you know, who held a gun to his partner's head and has you know had several secret secret children that he just kind of didn't take care of and didn't acknowledge. No one thinks that this guy should be, I mean, none of us, right? No Democrat thinks that this guy has any business being anywhere near the Senate. He's still competitive in that race. But this, these Republican polls have sort of bastardized the 538 modeling to make it look like everything's tightened up maybe even more than it has. And then what you get is a narrative where a bunch of reporters are like, oh, what's happening to Warnock? He's tanking and Walker is gaining. And why is that happening? Is it inflation? Is it the economy? Um, is, you know, what? Right. And so instead, instead of yeah, people they being, yeah. Right. There's then you look right. It's, it sets reporters on this trajectory to look for a reason that Warnock is stumbling. And guess what? You can find it if you look for it. You can find it. So sorry. Go ahead, uh, Marcos. No, I was going to say, and you know, one of the things that that civics allows us to do, this is our polling arm civics with a Q, is that we we track daily. And we, we haven't released our, our Georgia numbers publicly, but I can say that they haven't budged. They are, it's like two parallel lines because people's opinion doesn't change. 
people are pretty locked in. We're a pretty partisan country. So any kind of, anytime you see these polls going up and down and swinging all over, that doesn't change. What does change is who votes. That is the key. And that is what pollsters don't know ahead of time. And that's what you, it's, you know, we had Drew Linzer on of Civics on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about how there, there, there's a bit of art to polling because you have to guess. I mean, they can tell you, pollsters can pretty well tell you that white males that are age 65 plus are going to be X percent Republican. That, that's, that part's easy. What's not easy is, well, what percentage of the electorate are those people going to be? We may know that, well, a, like 60% of 65-year-old men are going to turn out and vote. We can get that because that's pretty consistent. Older white people vote pretty consistently. What we don't know are young people going to turn out, which would then shorten the percentage of those older older white men. Are, are you know, Gen Xers going to turn out or more women going to turn out or, or browner and black people going to turn out? Like those are the questions that, that are, that are um, very, they're actually impossible for a pollster to answer. So even when you see a pollster like nails an election, there's a big chunk of luck there because they're making educated guesses about who is going to turn out. So, Carrie, you were asking about this 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 pollster that's two teenagers, right? So this poll this posted yesterday. This uh, they're called Patriot Polling. Patriot Polling. That right there, you know, just tells you how accurate. And it was it was a poll of Wisconsin, and they have the Republican Ron Johnson winning by nine, fifty two forty three. Now, most credible polling has to race tied. Plus one, either direction. Right? This is this is Wisconsin. It's going to be ten thousand votes are going to determine who wins or loses. Oh my God! If you're in Chicago, get your butt up to Wisconsin and help help out with GOTV because they're gonna they need every every uh, hand on deck. But so this these guys, it's two 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 high schoolers came up with this poll. There's no no real evidence that they actually conducted a poll. But 538 throws it into its its numbers, and now it looks like Ron Johnson is going to win Wisconsin. And then, like you said, reporters will be like, hmm, I wonder what changed in Wisconsin that dramatically shifted the dynamics of the race. And and then, oh, it must be the economy, must be gas prices. And then blah, blah, blah right. for the last week talking about how bad had how bad economic numbers are hurting Democrats in Wisconsin. And literally nothing has changed except that two teenagers game the system because they are smart enough to realize that the 538 aggregate and real clear politics are a bunch of morons who aren't really focused on providing an accurate picture of of, um, of the electorate, but of, I don't, I don't know what, <laughs> 538, Nate, Nate Silver, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I think what's happening at your real clear politics has been, this has been happening for a while there. And that is, that is, uh, I think it's intentional what they're doing, screening out, you know, sort of Democratic polls or or even handed polls and university yeah. polling. Yeah, they, yep. they screen out anything that's that's accurate. Right. So real, real clear politics is actually is actually like skewing it on purpose. I think 538, like I can't defend. I mean, Nate Silver is going to have to defend himself, but I don't think this is purposeful on their part. I think people are gaming, gaming the system faster, particularly in this cycle, than they've been able to keep up with. That's my sense of things. Um, because, you know, you build this whole model, you build a whole system, you know, it's like, and it's in operation. And then all of a sudden, like all of these Republican, you know, and they wait for it. But you can see, even though that they've waited for these, um, you know, tried to sort of like take the edge off of some of these Republican polls, it still ends up 
it still ends up uh, affecting the aggregate. And this is true also, let me just add, I noticed this specifically in the Fetterman polling in the in Pennsylvania, where polling between Fetterman and um, uh, the Democratic nominee John Fetterman and uh, and Mehmet Oz, the Republican nominee, it shows a tightening race, and that is part of exactly the same thing that happened in the Georgia thing I just cited, where uh, where there's a, just been a flood of Republican polls that have suddenly given Oz a better a better outcome than than Fetterman. Now, there's there's no doubt that Oz has brought home Republicans that were skeptical at the beginning, and generally this this happens. This is not a a you know unexpected phenomenon. People come home, no matter how bad your candidates. We're so partisanized right now that generally speaking, most people will come home. But this idea that Fetterman has lost, you know, we we in in our polling, we certainly haven't seen that in the credible polling. We haven't seen Fetterman lose ground. And again, you know, people build narratives like the debate. Well, let me add something. We haven't, you know, I'm I'm going to take liberties here. I've been watching the civics polling and I'm not going to say what it is, but I've been watching the civics polling in terms of favorables and unfavorables after the debate. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, that debate must have really hurt Fetterman and blah, blah, blah. I don't see any 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 effect whatsoever on Fetterman's favorables and and um, and actually uh, Oz didn't help himself because his favorables aren't going up after the debate. They've sort of flatlined. So they're just steady. They've just remained steady. Um, whereas actually his unfavorables were ticking down slightly. Now they've just flatlined. They're just steady. So there's no suggestion whatsoever in civics that the at least from a favorable unfavorable standpoint that the debate affected anything and if anything it looks like it helped Fetterman so go ahead now the next factor is sort of the early vote I'm gonna, I I do want to talk a little bit about the early vote the early vote's not determinative and I just want to be very clear what it means that we are banking our vote in most states Nevada's looking a little sketchy but in most states we are doing far better this year than in 18 or, or 2020 even in the early vote. Now that can mean a bunch of things. It can mean that we're, we're depleting our pool of, of possible voters earlier. It can mean, because it's a lot of it is as a percentage, it can mean that Republicans, now that COVID is not a thing, are going back to elect, you know, election day voting. Uh, it can mean that a lot of Democrats are going back to election day voting now that COVID is not a thing. Like we just don't know. But what we do know, and this is important, is that we're banking a huge number of votes. And that means that our election day get out the vote operation is going to have a much easier time than the Republican side. We're going to be a lot less vulnerable to late breaking news. We're going to be a lot less vulnerable to election day weather. So it, 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 these are really, really good signs. And it points that there is a great deal of energy and excitement. We're definitely seeing that in, in Pennsylvania and Georgia, actually. So I'm feeling good about that. Now, there's a big question mark, and that is the youth vote. Because the youth vote isn't showing up in the early vote. But we've seen multiple polls, including, I think, was it? it was Harvard. I think Harvard Youth Poll. And you might actually have it there ready I to do. talk about, but that showed that, in fact, tell us what, what that what that poll tells us, because I think it's this is very important. So just just to set up the framing too, Tom Bonnier of Target Smart, he's the data data analyst, um, and he has been uh, he has been very clear that he he believes, based on the polling that he's see, he's seen, 
that the youth vote is more likely to turn up on election day. Now, no one can say that for sure. I don't, you know, I don't know. But this Harvard Kennedy School poll by the Institute of Politics showed that 40% of 18 to 29-year-olds said that they would definitely vote in November. And that's on track to uh, match or potentially exceed the record-breaking 2018 youth turnout in a midterm election. So um, young voters also prefer Democrats to control Congress over Republicans by 57% to 31%. And that's up five points for Democrats since the spring. So it looks like people are notoriously bad at sort of predicting their own own behaviors, like I'm going to vote or not vote or whatever. But based on what they're saying, the youth are saying, this could very well be completely historic, just like in terms of turnout among youth voters, just like 2018 and 2020 both were. Yeah. And this is if, if you if you're thinking about what can I do to help Democrats win this November? Here you go. Here's like a perfect one is find the young people, you know, in your in your circle, whether it's, you know, family or, you know, the kids of your friends or or you're a teacher or. Um, you know, you know, you know, people in other states and, and see where they live and, and, and get them engaged, get them to vote. Just just that action alone, because this is a demographic that's going to need the extra push. They're not they're not used to voting. This is not a high performing demographic. It takes a little bit extra work. Um, get the young kids in your in your in your circle to to turn out and vote. I'm excited because uh, my son uh, turned 18, all his friends turned 18. So now I got this whole universe of like his friends, I can pester, right? So this is, this is, this is uh, something you can, you can definitely, definitely do. And we've seen, and CBS um, had a model that basically showed if youth, youth voters turned out in high numbers, that, 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 that Democrats could keep the house. Now, I don't know, you know, like, again, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to turn out, but that just shows you if you're a young voter, if you know young voters, what kind of impact young voters can have. The CBS model was showing that if young voters turned out in historic numbers, and then there was a possibility of Democrats actually keeping the House because no one's modeled for young voters to turn out in super historic numbers. I mean, not, you know, in a midterm. So anyways, it's just like young voters sort of hold the election in their hands in terms of, of whether or not they're going to they're gonna vote. Yeah, no pollster ever lost their job for under predicting <laughs> youth turnout, right? I mean, it's you're just going to assume it's not going to be there. So this is this is a key. And given how strong in most places the Democratic early vote has been, it's uh, if we can match them on election day, and you know, youth turnout would be a big part of that. If we can match them on election day, then it's then it's then it's game over. So everything we've been talking about is to say that you're you're, you're seeing this media narrative, and it may sound really negative and and we're not saying we're gonna win we're saying we're in the game this is you know per civics polling per the credible polling not not the crap that's flooding the zone but the credible polling this is by all indications a 50 50 race i mean the country hasn't changed from 2020 it hasn't changed from 2016 we're 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 neatly cloven in half and so the party that wins is a party that outworks the other party so you can start at dailycoast.com/gotv that sounds for get out the vote dailycoast.com g o 
TV. You can look there. We have, we have, you know, different battleground states, organizations doing phone banking, writing letters, although we're probably too late for writing letters. So phone banking, knocking on doors, giving people rights to the polls, that sort of thing. Now's the time to really plan how you can help Democrats close, uh, close strong in this final week. If your backyard has a hot, important race and absolutely focus on that. If you live near a competitive race, like if you're in Chicago and uh, there's not much happening locally, but there's everything, you know, Wisconsin is is critical to our ability to, to have a functional Senate majority. If you're in New York, you can bust to Pennsylvania and make a make a you know, difference there. So, you know, you there's things you can do. Even if you're in a state that you, you've already voted in, you aren't concerned about, you can get over to Pennsylvania and help out if you're in New York. Yeah, if you're in Alabama, you're a Democrat, there's not much happening because it's such a Republican state. Heck, get yourself over to Georgia or even Florida and help out. Georgia's probably the, the, the more critical target right now. So there's somewhere that needs your help. And this is the time. This is it. Like, we're out of time. There's no more procrastinating. This is it. This is the final few days of this cycle. This weekend that's coming up is going to be absolutely critical. And so and so we got to close strong, guys. This is it. And it's hopeful because uh, because, you know, as of this morning, uh, Democrats led in terms of early vote by two point six million. And again, the caveat is. We don't know what that means ultimately, but what we do know is, is that every door we knock on has a better chance of getting someone who is an iffy voter to the polls, right? Because we're banking more votes in advance. So we're already ahead so far by 2.6 million votes in the early vote. And what we need to do now that we that people have really been responding to the early vote message, Democrats have really been responding to the early vote message, is then do the work on the back end to make sure we get the iffy voters also to the polls. Yeah, that's 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 the game. So the media the media has a narrative. They're stuck with it. They can as as we talked about New York Times, they had polls, Senate and House that showed that the Democrats were doing better than, quote, they expected. I don't, I don't know what they expect. Like, the polls are what they are. The polls are what they are. Like, the numbers are what they are. Now, if there's a poll that shows us, you know, competitive in an Oklahoma governor's race, which was a thing that has happened, yeah, okay, that's better than expected. But, but close races being close, I don't know what else you, like, quote, expect. Yet they still can't write the different story. They can't shift their narrative. So this is not something that we're saying, like, ignore ignore the evidence before your eyes. We're saying everybody else seems to. Like, the data's there. You can look at the polling itself. You can find that story at the New York Times, both under Senate and the House polls. You can look at the polls, and then you can read the story, and you can scratch your head and wonder where, what world they're living in, what polls they're looking at. We're not reinventing reality here. We're not conservatives. What we're saying is that this thing is going to be clear close. And so we're going to, the, the fate of the House and the Senate are going to hinge on just single digit thousands of votes in the aggregate, probably. So every single vote is going to matter. And that's going to be up to you and me and you, Carrie, and every, every, every listener to this podcast and every reader at Daily Coast. This is, this is the end game. And so much is going to be decided between what the voters decide next week are going to basically decide the fate of much of American democracy. 
and our ability to function as as a democratic nation under the rule of law. I wish it was hyperbole. No, it's not. It's it, it isn't. And you know, um, we talked to Jennifer Ancona um, from Way to Win a couple or last week, which I have. It's a pinned tweet I have to my Twitter handle at Carrie Ellaveld. But anyway, and she had she had great things to say. But they just dropped a their final closing ad this week, and it is really good. And if you want to go see it, you can go to We Decide. 2022.com. We decide 2022.com. And, um, it, it, and what it reminds us once again is that, you know, f- the, the course to freedom that this country has taken has always been decided by the people and not the politicians, the people. The people are the heroes of the story over and over and over. And so the voters get to write the story that they want not the media. The media doesn't get to decide what the voters do. The voters get to decide and then the media has to write up the results. So if you, you know, if you want to give a huge, like I, I am not about stoking hatred towards the media, but man, I think they have really committed journalistic malpractice. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of this, this exclusive group of reporters in the beltway have committed journalistic malpractice. And if you want to just send, sort of a huge F you to these folks so that they have to write up different results than what they predicted and rooted for, then go out and cast that vote. Go out and cast that vote, right? This is it, guys. Everything on the line. So that's our show for today and for this week. And this is our last show before the election. We are not going to have a podcast next Wednesday because we are actually going to, we're going to wait a day and so next week's podcast will come out on Thursday, guys. So that way we can actually talk about the results of the election and get a little, you know, get some results in before we can start interpreting. But hopefully we're telling a good story. And whether we tell a good story or not next week really depends on our collective ability to get out that last push, to get out our vote and really, really outwork Republicans. That what That's what this is all about. And so many of our rights are at stake. So let's get it done, guys. Thank you, Carrie. It's been uh, it's been a crazy year getting to this point, and I can't believe election day is gonna happen here. Thanks, Walter, our engineer. Thanks, everybody behind the scenes that makes the podcast happen, Kara, Dorothy, and Paul. And thank you, the listener, for joining us every week and being part of this movement to fight for our democracy and to hold back the tide of MAGA, these these fascist, undemocratic autocrats that want to anoint their their King Trump and and destroy American democracy in the process. So thank you for being part of that whole movement. Doesn't end this week. Doesn't end next Tuesday. It's going to be ongoing, but a lot will be decided. So let's leave everything on the road and outwork Republicans this final week. Thank you so much. Catch you guys next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. 